Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back to an all-new season of the Living Well Podcast by Jefferson Health. I'm Jessica Lopez. And I'm Carly Williams. It's great to be back. Today's episode is admittedly largely influenced by TikTok because that platform offers so much content when it comes to diets and what you should and shouldn't be doing to improve your health. Oh, agreed. And the trends come fast and furious, from water talk recipes aimed to help people reach hydration goals, to girl dinners, to protein pack snack recommendations. Yes, exactly. We discuss these diet trends and dive into more advice on weight loss medications, intermittent fasting, the keto diet, and the diet that's tried and true when it comes to weight management and overall health benefits with registered dietitian, Sarah Hoffman. Before we get into our interview with Sarah, we're asking a little favor from you. If you listen to our podcast, we'd love your feedback. Do you want us to continue exploring topics on diet and nutrition? Do you have any others in mind? Email us at livingwell@jefferson.edu, or slide into our DMs on social. And with that, here are the trends Sarah Hoffman recommends leaving behind in 2023, the trends we should be approaching with caution, and the trends we should be fully embracing in 2024. I'm Sarah Hoffman. I am a registered dietitian and licensed dietitian nutritionist. I got my master's of human nutrition from University of Delaware, and I am a certified specialist in obesity and weight management. I currently work in Jefferson's comprehensive weight management program, and I specifically work with patients undergoing bariatric surgery. And I've been there for a little over eight years. Today, we're breaking down what diet trends we want to embrace in 2024 and which ones to leave behind in 2023. We'll start off with the diet trends that we want to let go of that were popular in 2023. Where do we start? I'm going to start with the keto diet, which has been pretty popular for a couple years now. Um, Keto was originally developed to treat severe epilepsy in specifically infants and young children under medical supervision, but now it is pretty trendy. It's mainstream and people are using it a lot for weight loss. And what keto is supposed to do is restrict carbohydrate intake so much that it forces your body into what's called ketosis. And when you're in ketosis, you start to burn fat for fuel. And all ketosis is, it's actually a metabolic adaptation that has allowed humans to survive in times of famine, when food was scarce. And because the brain relies so heavily on carbohydrates for its energy source, it needs to find another way to get that energy so it starts burning fat. But now used as a diet, the typical recommendation for getting into ketosis is limiting carbs to about only 20 to 30 grams per day, and then increasing fat to about 70 to 80% of total calories. And protein tends to stay around the moderate level. But diets labeled as ketogenic or keto can vary wildly. What most people end up doing is really a modified keto or sort of a modified Atkins style diet. And that can still be effective for weight loss, but you're not really truly getting into ketosis consistently. It really takes a lot of effort to continually test to make sure that you're developing ketones and in ketosis, and most people don't end up doing that that strictly. One of the things about keto is that to get that low level of carbohydrate intake, you're eliminating huge food groups. So you're eliminating starches, grains, legumes, starchy vegetables like potatoes, peas, and corn. And really only a handful of lower carb fruits are allowed. 
there's also an, a high emphasis on fat intake, which you can see in a lot of the keto branded foods and snacks. So additional fats are usually added to them in some form. Now, keto is appealing because it works pretty quickly for weight loss. In the short term, when you're cutting out carbs that strictly, there's a quick loss of water. And additionally, because you're cutting out pretty entire food groups, most people are going to have a reduction in calorie intake as well, which really helps that quick weight loss. The keto diet is ranked number one in that U.S. News and World Report that they release every year. It's number one in fast weight loss diets only. It's actually way down at number 25 out of 30 for an overall healthy diet because there's a lot of negative side effects that go along with keto as well. I would think that the ones that are ranking as the fastest are probably the diets that are least sustainable. Exactly. It produces that really quick weight loss, but a lot of times the speed in which you lose weight is because it is cutting out whole food groups and being really restrictive, really altering kind of the normal way people are living their life and eating. And so it's so hard to follow long-term. There's a lot of other negative side effects with keto as well. One frequent side effect that people may have heard of before is known as keto flu. And that happens when you're first starting. It can include lightheadedness, fatigue, headaches, nausea, constipation, and it's the result of the body's rapid excretion of sodium and fluids, which is what happens when you're restricting carbohydrates that much. And even after the keto flu is over, that type of eating pattern where you're restricting carbs so much, increasing fats, it can cause constipation, amenorrhea, which is when you lose your period, confusion, loss of focus. So a lot of negatives to go along with that. Additional risks would be potential muscle mass loss as well because sometimes that protein intake isn't as high with this diet. And so if your calories are low, your protein is low, and you're losing weight quickly, a lot of that weight loss is going to come from muscle mass loss, which we definitely want to avoid. Mm -hmm. There's also changes to the gut microbiome with this style of eating, because you're cutting out a lot of those good fiber sources, the whole grains, the legumes, the fruits, some of the starchy vegetables, and there's really potential for other vitamin or mineral deficiencies because there's just a lack of variety. And uh, like we said, an elimination of those whole food groups. And we'll talk about this in the beneficial diets, but we know that those important plant foods are really helpful to cardiovascular health and brain health and reduction of disease risk. So keto really might have some long-term impacts that you won't even see right away. So it seems like probably a red flag with a diet if you think you need to supplement it with like a multivitamin because you know you're not getting enough nutrients from the food you're eating. Yeah, I mean, if you're cutting out the main foods where you're getting a lot of those antioxidants and phytochemicals, uh, you really might be setting yourself up for some deficiencies in the long term. And the keto diet also emphasizes that high fat intake, but doesn't typically make mention of which types of fats. So you're not differentiating between olive oil and nuts versus butter and heavy cream and red meats. So if you're doing a lot of those more saturated fats, that can also impact cholesterol levels and cardiovascular disease and increase your risk for other um, heart-related diseases as well. Bye, keto. <laughs> 
So not something I would recommend, uh, especially because of that rigidity, not a lot of long-term studies as well, because it's hard for people to stick to, to even study what the long-term effects are. So if you would want to play around with keto, definitely would recommend following up with the dietitian or medical professional. So you aren't doing yourself any harm. Great. And what's another trend that we would want to get rid of? So another trend that seems to be a little bit more prevalent now is juicing anything from juice cleanses to green powders to things like IV hydration powders and packets. And there's a lot of different products on the market that you can find that have kind of that juicing label to them. Typically what people mean, I think, when they say they're juicing is consuming different types of juices or liquids instead of regular meals. So you're kind of replacing your normal meal with a liquid form of fruits, vegetables, or a combination. And there's ways that you can do this yourself, right? If you have a juicer at home, you can make your own blends. You can buy expensive whole diet programs that sell their juices or find different kinds of fancy pressed juice out at smoothie places and restaurants. And while juicing can help to increase fruits and vegetables in the diet, the act of juicing really will replace or remove rather some or all of that beneficial fiber content because you're taking away the skin of the fruit, the pulp of the fruit, and that's a lot of where the fiber resides. So the juice itself will have a different nutritive value, and it might not have the same health benefits as the whole fruits and vegetables would. Juices are typically lacking protein and healthy fats, vitamin D, B12, and some may be really high in calories just due to all of that fruit content. So it's definitely not a replacement for a full meal. And liquids like juice also leave your stomach faster than whole fruits and whole vegetables would. So juicing can cause you to take in an insufficient number of calories that can lead to excessive hunger, low blood sugar, dehydration, weakness, headaches, fainting, any initial weight loss that you might see with a juice diet or cleanse would be mostly from fluid losses. And it would come right back on as soon as you stop juicing. Now there's also greens powders that you probably have seen. Uh, a lot of times they're promoted by influencers on either TikTok or Instagram, and they make a lot of additional health claims, either that they detox or support and cleanse gut health. But if you really dig into their website, there's no actual research studies that they're citing. It's mostly marketing off of testimonials from people. And there might be healthful ingredients in there. I mean, they do put in vitamins and minerals and herbs, but the catch is we don't know how much of these things are actually in the product. Usually the scoop size is pretty small. And so the amount of ingredients listed and the actual scoop that you're getting, it, it's probably fair to say that you're not getting a whole lot of each ingredient in that scoop. So is it enough to actually make a difference in your health? Probably not. Definitely a better idea to just eat the regular fruits and veggies. The most important point out of all of that, though, that I want to say is that anything labeled as a detox or a cleanse is unnecessary. Your liver, your kidneys, your GI tract, that all functions to filter out toxins from the body. There's no evidence showing that you need to supplement or help or assist your organs in doing that job.
That's a good point to make. And what about any way to speed up your metabolism? That's always something that even patients ask, or you'll see a lot of health claims with products. There are certainly things you can do that will help increase how many calories you burn. And that's really what your metabolism is, right? It's how many calories you're burning a day. Things like increasing muscle mass with exercise can help. Getting enough sleep can also help. And eating enough protein in the diet, that's all going to kind of impact how many calories your body can use. But there's a whole lot that contributes to someone's metabolic rate, not only genetics, but your activity level, your body composition, what other medical conditions you might have. Um, And because it's such a complex system, there really is no magic pill or supplement or powder or ice bath that is going to speed up someone's metabolism overnight. It's just too complex of a system for one thing to make such an impact that way. And I do think at least in the marketing for the supplements or the powders that are supposed to be metabolism boosters, there's this fear that's planted often that if you have done a restrictive diet, if you have dieted the wrong way, then you've messed up your metabolism and here's the thing to fix it. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much credibility you can give that claim that if you are someone who did keto before or any of those other more restrictive things, could you have damaged your metabolism enough that that's the reason you're having a really hard time losing weight? It's probably very complex and case by case, but it was just a thought I had. So there's definitely a grain of truth to that because when you are sort of doing that yo-yo pattern of gaining weight, losing weight, gaining weight, it can impact your metabolism and it may make it harder for you to lose weight in the future. The way that you fix, quote unquote, that um, isn't going to be with something like a supplement or a powder. It's just that consistency of Mm -hmm. getting back into good routines with healthy eating, on a long-term basis and exercise, kind of building that muscle mass back up. Mm Because that's one of the reasons why we think, you know, that metabolism might decrease with this yo-yo dieting is because you are typically losing a bit of muscle mass every time you lose weight. And we know that muscle burns more calories than other body tissue. Mm -hmm. So if we can build that muscle mass back up a bit, get enough protein in, eat those healthy foods, get enough sleep, that is going to be your best bet to try to reverse any issues that might have arisen from other diets in the past. And what's the general recommendation with protein intake? So the clinical recommendation is 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And to find your kilograms, it's your weight divided by 2.2. And that is, again, the general recommendation. Your needs might be higher based on your activity level, your sex, your other health conditions, right? So it's definitely not a one size fits all, Mm -hmm. but that is kind of that general good place to start. Okay. Well, if those are the trends that we want to leave behind in 2023, what about the trends that we should be approaching more cautiously going into this year, starting with meal replacement diets? So meal replacements... This is another area where it really depends on how you're using those meal replacements. I see patients a lot who are skipping meals 
frequently are uh, going long stretches without eating or snacking on those kind of ultra processed foods instead of having a meal. So mm. in those cases, drinking a protein shake or a meal replacement shake can be a really great alternative. What I caution against is that diet mentality of replacing multiple meals a day with liquid shakes for that finite amount of time, right? Mm. So for the next month, I'm going to replace breakfast and lunch with a shake and then have a normal dinner. It's best to avoid following that shake-based diet program because it doesn't actually help you improve your nutrition in the long term. Mm. It doesn't teach you the healthy foods to eat. It doesn't give you that knowledge base so that you can continue it long term. So it won't be sustainable, right? You're likely not going to drink shakes for two meals a day for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you go back to eating your three meals a day or skipping meals again, you'll likely regain that weight that you might have lost. She is me. <laughs> it's easy to do, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, if you're going to choose to do a meal replacement or a protein shake for those specific times, so instead of skipping or bringing one with you as a backup plan, it really does matter what type of shake you're going to use. Some can be really high in added sugars or lower in protein, low in fiber. Some of the protein smoothies that you purchase out um, can be hundreds of calories and your entire day's worth of sugar intake. So you really want to make sure that you're looking at those food labels, checking to make sure that it's a good quality in terms of protein content, fiber, low in added sugars, so that it'll actually make you feel satisfied and full and take you to that next meal time. In terms of the, the sugars, when looking mm -hmm. at the added sugar, their general range where should we say like less than 10 grams or is even that higher than you should be aiming for? Yeah, that's a great question. So for most people in the general population, we want for typically for women, less than 25 grams of added sugars per day. And for mm. men, less than about 35 per day. Mm. So per shake, I usually say to look for less than about five to seven grams of mm. added sugars. Okay. Other trends to approach cautiously. So one trend I think people are becoming a lot more attracted to is plant-based eating or plant-forward eating mm -hmm. um, as meat alternatives are becoming more available and mainstream. Now, of course, vegetarian eating and plant-based eating has been around for thousands of years, but it does seem to be picking up steam a little bit more in the U.S., either for health reasons or climate change concerns or animal welfare reasons. So I think it's important to note that there are so many versions of plant-based eating that you mm -hmm. can do. It's kind of easy to find a way that works for you if you wanted to implement this. And basically put uh, plant-based diets emphasize vegetables, cooked beans and peas, fruits, whole grains, nuts, and seeds. Now, there's certainly variations on that. You could consider yourself pescatarian and include fish or choose to exclude meat, but you may eat dairy and eggs. And that's a lot different than vegan, who completely eliminates all animal products at all. And then there's some people that are more comfortable being semi-vegetarian or flexitarian. So you'll occasionally eat fish or poultry or meat, but mostly focus on the plant-based foods. Evidence does show vegetarian diets are associated with lower risks of death from heart disease, 
vegetarians appear to have lower LDL cholesterol, which is that bad cholesterol, mm-hmm. um, lower blood pressure, as well as lower rates of type two diabetes and even some cancers. And there are certain features of a vegetarian diet that are likely contributing to that. There's lower intakes of saturated fat, usually lower cholesterol intake, higher intakes of fruits and veggies, whole grains, soy foods, nuts, which include more fiber and phytochemicals. So that's likely what's really helping to reduce that risk of chronic disease. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure if you've been down the grocery store aisles lately, there are a lot of other plant products marketed now. So you'll find everything from veggie burgers to soy bacon to veggie pastas, chickpea ice cream, chickpea Mm -hmm. cookie dough and legume butters. And all of those can be really convenient, but you know, not all of them are going to be a great choice in what they're actually, what their makeup is. So it's generally going to be the best choice to choose whole minimally processed plant foods Mm because they'll be lower naturally in saturated fat and sugar and sodium. And some of those more processed things like the chickpea cookie dough and the legume butters, they still might be high in, in added sugars or fat content. Cost is also a factor to consider with the plant-based foods, especially those more trendy ones, the packaged foods, because I don't want to give the impression that, you know, healthy food has to be expensive or Mm -hmm. that you have to purchase the chickpea pasta for $4 instead of the 99 cent pasta, because that is not everyone's experience or ability. So there's lots of more budget-friendly plant-based foods like edamame and peanut butter and oatmeal and tofu, canned beans, um, chickpeas and quinoa, and fresh and frozen produce as well. So you don't always have to buy the fresh, more expensive versions, uh, especially if they're out of season, they can get a little bit costly. There are some concerns or things to think about if you're going to choose to eat more plant-based. So it's important that it's planned so that it is nutritionally adequate. Some nutrition concerns, if you're doing more of a vegetarian or especially vegan diet, would be thinking about your omega-3 fatty acid intake, vitamins B12 and vitamin D, especially because B12 is only found in animal foods. Things like calcium and iron and zinc might be a little lower. And then just planning to make sure you're getting enough protein from those plant foods since you're cutting out more of those animal protein foods. That kind of leads to another trend. Speaking of wandering grocery aisles, <laughs> lately there's a lot of like protein packed foods like protein popcorn, protein chips. Like mm-hmm. are those things that you think could be good to include in your diet or kind of remain in that approach with caution category? Because I imagine they're all also very processed. Exactly. I think it's definitely an approach with caution. I think more people are are now aware of how important protein is in their diet. And you're seeing that reflected from manufacturers, putting it in, like you said, the Pop-Tarts and the ice creams and the cookies and the candies. If someone's struggling to eat enough protein with their meals, Uh, some added protein foods might be beneficial. Mm. There's extra protein added to things like oatmeal as well. Um, Something like extra protein Greek yogurt or peanut butter. Those could all be okay choices to include. But there are products that are just 
added whey protein powder or added pea protein powder, and not much else has changed in those foods. So a cookie is a cookie, whether or not there's extra protein content added to it. Mm. And a good example of this is the Quest peanut butter cups. So if you compare the Quest peanut butter cup with a regular Reese peanut butter cup, the calories are pretty identical. They're both right around 200 calories. The mm. protein, of course, is going to be higher in the Quest. So it's 11 grams versus only five. But the saturated fat is double in the Quest peanut butter cup than the regular Reese's cup. So it's 10 grams versus four and a half. Depending on what you're looking for, you know, that might not be a better choice. If you don't have trouble getting your protein in, there's no reason for you to go for those types of protein packed foods. Because it's a better bet just to eat your poultry and seafood and dairy and eggs and legumes to get your protein in. Do you feel like the extra fat is in there because they need it to make it taste better because yeah, it has all the whey of, protein in it? Yeah. yeah, a lot of times when something's taken away, so it is lower in sugar, the, the Quest peanut butter cups and the Quest cookies and those type of things. So because they're removing the sugar they need it to taste good, like you said. So they're adding a little extra fat for that palatability. So it sounds like your recommendation is to focus on getting protein from whole sources. And if you're craving a peanut butter cup to get just a peanut butter cup and eat the peanut butter cup. Yep. And eat it mindfully and then move on with your day. Okay. What about the hydration boost trend? water talk became such a thing, all the different flavors that you can add to water to make it, I guess, palatable or encourage people to drink more water. What are your thoughts on that? This is another one that is an approach cautiously. We know drinking enough fluids is crucial to deliver nutrients to your cells, keep organs functioning properly, prevent infections, keep skin healthy, lubricate joints, even mild dehydration can affect your memory and concentration. Um, it can decrease your mood, cause headaches. It can make you feel sluggish because mm. not enough oxygen is going to be able to be pumped around your body. So hydration, super, super important. And if people are having trouble getting that uh, fluid in, you know, maybe you're not a water drinker or you don't love the taste of just plain water. So doing something that feels fun and special and gives you a little bit different taste can be a really nice way to make sure you're hydrated. Mm -hmm. I think what gives me pause is a lot of the water talk trends and recipes that caught on, they do feature a lot of the sugar-free syrups, the sugar-free flavor packets in pretty large quantities. So you don't want to get into the mindset where all your fluids need to be sweet to be enjoyed, right? Mm. You don't want to have to expect everything to taste super sweet and super flavorful just to be able to drink it. Now, if you're trying to wean yourself off of soda or sweet teas or juice, transitioning over to some sugar-free beverages can be a really nice way to transition, but you do want to make sure you're getting in a little bit of plain water as well just mm. to keep that balance. Or you could do something like add your own fruits or vegetables or herbs to your water to flavor it, which is a nice option as well. I think it's also important to remember that just because you're adding something to your water, it's not taking away from the hydration, right? Mm. Things like coffee, tea, flavored waters, 
seltzer waters, they all count towards hydration goals. So you don't need to just be drinking the water recipes to get hydrated. I feel like it goes without saying that a huge part of 2023 was weight loss medications. So thoughts around weight loss medications. Yeah. So I think the weight loss medications that people are referring to is the GLP ones, right? Which that stands for glucagon like peptide one receptor agonists. Mm. And these are semaglutide, liraglutide. There's other ones as well that have been kind of in that marketplace more for type two diabetes. There's a, a couple out there now that even more recently have just gotten FDA approval. And these have been shown to be pretty helpful for weight loss, glucose control, other potential benefits for cardiovascular health. So they've been very popular recently. I know at our office, a lot of people are wondering about them, asking about them, um, wondering if they would be a good fit. So just a little background on what the GLP-1 actually is. GLP-1 is naturally occurring. It's a hormone that our body releases in response to food. So it's one of your satiety hormones, right? When you eat, eventually that GLP-1 is going to be released. And these GLP-1 medications contain those hormones naturally made by the body, but that sometimes are low or deficient in people, especially people that might have excess weight or that have type 2 diabetes. So the GLP-1 drugs, they stimulate insulin release. They can also inhibit when your body's sort of inappropriately um, releasing glucagon post-meal. They can slow gastric emptying and decrease appetite. So kind of put simply, they can help quiet the food noise in the brain. They can decrease cravings and control hunger levels. Despite the success of them, I think, Sometimes when patients are being prescribed these medications, the range of information they receive is anywhere from a a lot or zero. Mm. So the concern is that people are kind of being able to take these and don't get a whole lot of guidance on how to optimize their use. So it's really important that, you know, you're either seeing a dietitian when you're on these or following up with your nurse practitioner or doctor that prescribed them. Some concerns um, that I see especially is that people that are on these medications, because they work so well to decrease appetite and delay your gastric emptying and decrease hunger, that some people find it difficult to eat enough at mealtimes. And it's really important that you continue to get that protein and the fiber that you need when losing weight to stay healthy, avoid losing too much muscle mass, Um, and get all the nutrition in that you need. Mm -hmm. So I always recommend that people, you know, prioritize getting your protein intake in first at the meal, right? Eat that first on your plate. So, you know, you have room for it, Uh, engaging in regular physical activity to help reduce that muscle mass loss um, and strength training Mm -hmm. specifically to help build up that muscle. But you have to remember, too, that these medications, while they're really helpful, they're still just a tool. So it's really vital that the healthy eating and the lifestyle changes kind of go hand in hand with the medication so that you can use the tool effectively. The other thing that some people don't realize is that because obesity is a chronic disease, 
stopping the, the medications will likely result in weight regain. Those beneficial effects like the reduction in appetite, hormonal control, they'll be lost when you stop the medication and you might have that increase in hunger come back. So ongoing use of these will really help support those hormones and support the appetite regulation. Just like you wouldn't stop blood pressure meds if your blood pressure was back to normal, the medications really help long-term control the glucose and weight and those cardiovascular benefits. Unfortunately, there's a lot of demand for these that have outpaced the ability to find these medications. So finding them has been a challenge for some people. There are now um, popping up kind of non-prescription forms on websites or places you can order them off brand or different formulations um, that can be really unsafe. So you don't want to kind of go on your own and order them, only would want to take them if they were prescribed to you. Yeah, it did not take long for that to happen. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And in terms of the weight loss medications, is there a general weight range that someone is in that you're a better candidate for weight loss medications? Or is it really just like case by case? So there are parameters for who can be prescribed these medications. And typically a BMI of 27 or higher would be a candidate for starting these type of weight loss meds. Another trend that comes top of mind um, is intermittent fasting. Is this another approach with caution? I think IF kind of teeters that line between red flag and approach with caution. It's been around for a while. Uh, It's definitely one of those diets that has a lot of claims surrounding it, right? It's potentially impactful for weight loss. People say it could increase longevity, improve brain function, reduce risk of chronic disease, And it's specific in that it is not a diet in the sense it's telling you what to eat, right? It's only telling you when you can eat. Uh, And there's many ways that you can can approach approach intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. There's time-restricted eating where you're doing something like eating for eight hours a day and then fasting for the other 16. There's alternate day fasting where you cycle between fasting and non-fasting days. And then there's more of a modified IF where you restrict intake on your fasting days. And then it's, you follow that with longer stretches of non-fasting days. That's sometimes referred to as that five, two method, five days a week, you're eating somewhat normally, and then two days you're fasting. And what's interesting is there's no hard and fast rule about how many calories you can eat on those fasting days, but typically it's below 500. So it's a, a very, very low calorie or zero calorie day. Mm -hmm. A lot of the studies done on intermittent fasting have been rodent studies. And of course we can't correlate directly the outcomes of those mouse studies or rat studies to humans. But ones that we do have specifically for weight loss, both intermittent fasting and calorie restriction has shown weight loss, at least in the short term. So there's no additional benefit to losing weight with intermittent fasting other rather than a, just a regular kind of more traditional calorie restriction diet. You mm-hmm. can lose weight both ways because you're restricting calories. 
So for some people, limiting their eating window can prevent that extra snacking or can eliminate the need for calorie counting. And some people don't like doing that. So restricting your eating window kind of gets rid of the need for that. Some people may want to reduce their nighttime eating. And so they find that putting parameters around their eating times can make them more mindful of that. However, this causes weight loss because of that calorie restriction. There isn't anything extra special about the time of day the food is being eaten. And more studies are needed on topics like IF and cardiovascular health, cancer, longevity. So far, the evidence just isn't there. Um, and more research would need to be done before any claims about fasting and the prevention of disease could really be made. Now, where it gets into red flag te territory is that there are several concerning side effects with re restrictive diets such as this. Mm -hmm. There's symptoms of hunger, kind of temperature changes, fatigue, headaches, low energy, irritability, that hangry feeling, right? And continually alternating between fasting and non-fasting days can also result in some gastrointestinal issues like gas or bloating or constipation. Now, long-term, some intermittent fasting diets can be very difficult to stick to and potentially lead to nutrient deficiencies if you're not able to get in enough food during your eating window. And there are certain populations who definitely should not be following a fasting diet. So anyone with type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes that need insulin, individuals suffering from hypoglycemia or low blood sugar levels, um, anyone taking medications that require you to take that medication with food, um, and then, of course, anyone pregnant or breastfeeding should not be following IF. Mm -hmm. The other concern would be anyone that has a history of disordered eating or a diagnosed eating disorder. This type of restriction can really exacerbate that um, and should be cautioned. Mm -hmm. So overall, I think in terms of being more mindful around when you're eating in the day can be helpful to some, but large amount of times fasting is generally not going to be great for our health. And when you mention mindful eating, I've heard, you know, chew your food 20 times. What does mindful eating mean to you? So mindful eating is the practice of not multitasking while you're eating sitting down at a table or a, a quiet area, appreciating your food, chewing well, not rushing through, taking your time, eating with others, right? You don't have, doesn't have to be silent while you're eating. You know, you appreciate the food with people around you, talk, have enjoyment around your food. Um, so you want to make it a, an experience, like a nice experience. Now that in our busy life is not always feasible, but the more that you can avoid driving, watching TV, you know, scrolling on the phone and really just focusing on your meal, typically you feel more satisfied, your brain registered that you ate. So you usually won't be as hungry later. You won't be reaching for those snacks as often later. Um, and it just makes the whole experience a little bit more enjoyable. Well, moving on to the exciting portion, the diet approved trends. <laughs> um, I guess we'll start with the girl dinners. Yeah. Girl dinner, uh, definitely trendy. <laughs> I've, I've seen it a lot. 
It was even on a segment on, you know, Good Morning America or one of those type of morning shows. Basically, what it is, is like a little mini charcuterie board for one that you're making. Usually kind of involves foraging around in the kitchen, throwing together a meal that doesn't involve a lot of prep work or cooking. And I love that concept, right? Quick, easy meals. But the caveat is that you still want to make sure it's providing enough nutrition and it's not just a few crackers on your plate and a glass of wine because it could very easily kind of lend itself to just grabbing a, a quick snack. So when you're making a no-cook meal, you still want to look for the same nutrition as if you were doing something more elaborate. You're looking for a protein source, something with fiber, and enough calories just to keep you satisfied. So an ideal girl dinner should include a protein source, a high fiber carb, and a healthy fat. And we keep, of course, calling it girl dinner, but it's not gendered. You know, anyone can have a nice, easy, quick, no-cook meal. Um, and these, I think, too, it, it's a nice way to avoid the impulse to get takeout or swing by a convenience store to grab a meal because you can actually make a pretty nutritious meal just from what you have in your house. So a good template might be finding three to four ounces of a protein like sliced lean meats, hard-boiled eggs, cooked chicken that you might have left over. Maybe it's roasted chickpeas or edamame, hummus, like some kind of good, nice protein source. Then you're building upon that. You're adding some veggies, maybe cut up pepper strips or cucumbers. Maybe you have some baby carrots lying around you can throw in or celery. Uh, something like a hummus dip could go with that or some avocado, maybe some peanut butter with the celery. So some kind of healthy fat in there as well. And then some, a high fiber carb. So maybe some fruit, maybe whole grain cracker, maybe a little whole grain pita wedge, you know, something to make you feel satisfied uh, and keep that fullness for the long term. Because the goal is really to give yourself enough fuel, but in a way that feels easy and fun. I feel like having toddlers help me with my girl dinners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think snack dinners are great for a lot of populations. We have snack dinner at our house too with the kids. <laughs> ah, it's perfect. And then kind of like girl dinners is the adult snack box, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I think anyone who went to school in the 90s had the Lunchables or at least knew someone that had Lunchables. Mm -hmm. And the convenience and portability of that is really appealing. It's easy to throw in that lunchbox. But, you know, those pre-made versions are pretty high in sodium, saturated fat from the processed meats, and it won't really give you much in the way of fiber. So when making your own Lunchable, you do want to follow those same guidelines that we just talked about with making that balanced meal, getting that lean source of protein, source of fiber, healthy fats, because that's what's going to help slow your rate of digestion, stabilize your blood sugars, and prevent that post-meal fatigue. Mm -hmm. So building your Lunchable around the protein source is a good place to start. So like we mentioned, even for those snack dinners, it's, you know, diced chicken or the low-sodium deli turkey or ham, tuna or chicken salad, hard-boiled eggs. Those are always nice because they're make-ahead. 
uh, even something like baked tofu or edamame, smoked salmon. And then you could have something dairy related, right? Just maybe throw in a Greek yogurt container or a cottage cheese container. And then again, rounding out that Lunchable with some maybe cut up veggies, uh, the healthy dip, like the hummus, the guac, uh, even tzatziki can be thrown in there, a Greek yogurt dip, and then adding in some of the fruit or whole grains to make you feel good and satisfied until dinner time. And the nice thing about the Lunchables too, is that you can make a few ahead of time. So you can really meal prep and set your week up for that success. And then lastly, we have the Mediterranean diet. Yeah, this one keeps popping up. I think it is the seventh year in a row that it is the number one diet from US News and World Report. And aside from just best overall diet, it also ranked number one for the easiest to follow for best family-friendly diet, uh, best diet for healthy eating and for diabetes and bone and joint health. So a lot of number one spots. So for those that aren't familiar, the Mediterranean diet recommends a focus on eating plant-based foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, and seeds. It also stresses eating fish and seafood at least a couple times a week consuming poultry and eggs and cheese and yogurt in moderation, moderate intakes of alcohol, wine in particular, and really limiting sweets and red meats, beef for special occasions. It also gives priority to healthy fats, specifically olive oil over butters and using herbs and spices instead of salt to flavor the foods. So with following this type of diet, you're getting a high intake of antioxidants, monounsaturated fats, which are those heart healthy fats, omega-3 fatty acids, along with good fiber intake as well. Another interesting aspect of the Mediterranean diet, which is really more of an eating style rather than a diet, is its focus on social interaction with meals. So it wants that mindful eating, like we talked about, you do engage also in movement and activity. So it really is kind of taking the whole person into account, not just what foods you're consuming. So this diet's well known for its cardiovascular uh, health, as well as anti-inflammatory benefits. It's associated with healthy aging, a reduction in certain types of cancers, type two diabetes and Parkinson's disease. And we're now finding too more and more research showing how protective it is for the brain. And following this eating style is associated with slower cognitive decline, reducing risk for anxiety and depression and lowering someone's risk for dementia. And it's also, it's important to note that there's no one Mediterranean diet. So it's not a diet in the traditional weight loss sense. There's a lot of ways that you can incorporate different foods and still be following this plan. Uh, and studies do show that even though the Mediterranean diet isn't strictly for weight loss, it can be effective for weight loss and weight maintenance. And one of the reasons is because it's easy to tailor to your preferences and easy to stick to in the long term. Typically and traditionally, it's made up of about 40% carbohydrate, 40% fat, 20% protein. So it's rich in high fiber foods, protein foods, and healthy fats, which is going to give you that good 
appetite control, and satisfaction. And what I really love about the Mediterranean diet is that it's a whole diet approach. So it takes the emphasis off of individual nutrients or you know specific vitamins or minerals uh, because each component's contributing health promoting nutrition to the diet, but likely working together. So it's more of a synergistic effect to support your health. And we know that there's not a whole lot of studies that found benefit of protection with dietary supplements against cognitive decline, and the Mediterranean diet does. So that's kind of further evidence that the benefits are derived from those whole food nutrients. Another benefit to the Mediterranean diet is the cost. There's no special bars to buy. There's no fancy shakes you need to purchase. Uh, there's no expensive packaged foods. So it can be really cost effective. And it recommends a lot of low cost foods like fruits and veggies and whole grains and legumes. Some things might be more expensive like seafood or produce, but there are less expensive options like canned tuna or salmon pouches or sardines even. And you can utilize frozen vegetables and frozen fruits um, to make sure that it is within your budget. So definitely easy to see why it's showing up at the top of that list. Be sure to check out the show notes for additional resources, including the link to the Living Well blog where we publish full episode transcripts. And as always, if you enjoy our podcast, we truly appreciate a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Fun fact, the full podcast episodes are also available on our YouTube channel at Jefferson Health. Production support for today's episode provided by Brittany Raffalak and Barbara Henderson. We're your hosts, Carly Williams and Jessica Lopez. Be well.